So we're working our way through Luke. Um, we got as far. We were supposed to get through one and two last week, but um, uh, I didn't get that far, um, which is good because uh, we get to slow down a little bit and look at the end of Luke chapter two. Um, the aim of these times is not only to uh, for me to impart the wisdom that the Lord has imparted to me this week, uh, but rather to equip you. My main job description is there in Ephesians chapter 4 as a pastor teacher to equip God's people for works of ministry. You're the ministers, as I've said many times, not me. And so um, my job is to equip you. Um, And so what I've suggested is that as we work our way through Luke, why not think about meeting up with someone who hasn't had the chance to be here, someone perhaps who doesn't know Jesus, and invite them to read Luke's gospel with you. I've got lots of copies of Luke on its own, um, and this very handy one-to-one guide, so you don't have to think up clever questions, um, but you can just work it through uh, with them. If you'd like to do that, I've ordered uh, eight copies of the one-to-one guide. I've got almost limitless copies of Luke, um, so please do be thinking about that. And therefore, as you take notes, don't be thinking, oh, um, is Alex interesting or not? Is he keeping me awake or not? But as good or bad as Alex is, is preaching me through the passage... How am I learning? How is God speaking to me? And how am I being equipped to share this news with others? Um, so that's a much more important thing. Um, I was reading an article that a friend sent around about the sort of celebrity culture in evangelical churches. Now, we're not big enough for me to be in danger of being a celebrity, but there is a lot of pressure on ministers to sort of be the big cheese in the church uh, that makes or breaks the church. And if a a minister leaves and the church could collapse, or if the minister stays, and so on. Well, as I said, you're the ministers. I'm just an equipper. And so let's build a culture, not of dependence on the quality of one person's preaching, but on a deep personal study of God's word that gives us the confidence to go out and share it with others. And to that end, why don't I pray as we think? Our Father, thank you for the chance to... Uh, come to this passage at the end of Luke chapter 2 and we pray that by your spirit you would make these words that he, your Holy Spirit, inspired all those years ago come alive in our hearts today. Would you excite us by what we're looking at and would you equip us to take the good news that we're reading about and share it with those who don't know you yet. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Um, to save me doing all the talking, can I transfer to Penny? Are you happy to do some reading? Mm-hmm. Um, would you be happy to read, uh, so page 1028, um, Luke 2, 22 to, to 40? Um, and we'll pause there. So Luke chapter 2, verse 22. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. 
Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marvelled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God, and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Thank you. Debbie, would you be happy to read the... I'm Lisa, would you be happy to read the next bit, the, the boy Jesus in the temple? And as we read this bit, have a look. This is the first time that Jesus speaks publicly at least in, that is recorded for us. Um, have a look at what he claims for himself. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival, according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they travelled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and man. Thanks very much. Um, so it doesn't feel like I'm preaching to an empty space here and a big crowd at the back. If you're comfortable at the back and you want to come forward, if you want to stay at the back, feel free to, then do. And as people are coming forward, discuss among yourselves what, what questions do you have after you come to this. We're going to have, um, I'll probably do mostly monologue, but if anyone's got a question during the sermon, then please feel free to ask it. But just as people gather at the front, ask yourselves that question. What questions do you have? What strikes you in your minds as you read this? Anyone got any particularly kind of burning questions as we start this? Anyone want to own up or do you want me to just dive in? Why is Jesus such a naughty boy? Why is Jesus such a naughty boy, yeah. It seems to be, yeah, he's a bit 
or at least a bit kind of arrogant and kind of uh, doing his own thing. Yeah, well, we'll come to that. <laughs> um, uh, any other burning questions? I guess okay. why the formalities of going to the temple and being presented? And yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Why does he have to go through all this, and why are we being told about this? Um, how can that be relevant? Okay. What we're going to do now is we're going to zoom out um, quite a long way and just see some big picture uh, Bible context. And the first thing that we need to to think about um, as we begin to before we even start to zoom in is that we were made for a relationship with God, like a like a son or a daughter is made for a relationship with their father with their parents. One of total dependence on God and, and deep love. And there was a time, there was a time many thousands of years ago when one man and one woman enjoyed that relationship as it was meant to be. They enjoyed the kind of world that we all long for. A world of peace and safety and love and joy. But more than that, They enjoyed a world where life and work had real meaning and purpose and direction and sense because it was all enjoyed and achieved in a deep personal relationship with with God himself. A God they were able to call their father. But it wasn't long before that relationship was broken because the love of God for his people was, was not a controlling love. It wasn't like a computer programming love. No, it was a love of choice. And that choice was symbolised by a tree. A tree in the midst of the great, beautiful garden city, as it were, where Adam and Eve lived. And that tree was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God warned Adam and Eve not to eat from that tree, because in doing so, they would sever, they would cut the father-son relationship that they enjoyed. Because that tree represented the opportunity to set themselves up as independent from God. Rather than enjoying a beautiful relationship of dependence on God who is the source of life. If they ate from that tree, they would be making a statement that from then on would define, that, that, that they would define good and evil for themselves. They would be the ones who set the rules, who said what was good for them and what was not good for them. They would be believing a terrible lie in taking from that tree. That it was better in some way to be in competition with God than to be dependent on God. That it was better to set themselves up as independent little gods rather than to enjoy the flourishing life that they were made to live with God, the source of life. And so we get that first point on our sheets. In the inside of your service sheets, uh, if you don't know, we, we often uh, print sermon notes so that you can take notes and help you follow through. And the first thing there is the broken father-son relationship. And it may be a surprise to many, because we've had a Christian culture for the last couple of thousand years uh, that people have either witnessed or experienced. Um, ever since that point, no one called God their father. And every child born into the world was born with the instinct to be independent from God, to do their own thing, just as Adam and Eve had done. It's an instinct that we're familiar with, an instinct that pushes God out of the picture. (coughs) 
But God didn't leave us in that kind of suicidal track of pursuing independence from him, the source of life, like pulling the um, plug on our own life support machine. God didn't leave us to die in that way. But God took the initiative and he chose of the people that were born to this world a new family for himself. He spoke to Abraham, in, we're told about that in the first half of the Bible, and Abraham was told that he would have a family that God promised to rescue. And through that family, God would draw to himself a great people from all over the world. A people who would know God and love him. A people who would know God in right relationship with him in a beautiful place for all eternity. And Abraham had children and ultimately that family became known as Israel. The people of Israel. And those people were known as God's son. In fact, God used that word in, in Exodus, in the second book in the Bible. God describes the people of Israel, his people, as like his firstborn son. Because it was through this people that he would bring everyone back into relationship with himself. It was through this people that he would create a beautiful land in which they would dwell and enjoy that relationship with him. With him right in the centre. But the problem with that people is that they shared the common problem that their great, 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 great grandparents faced. Which was that they too pushed God out of the picture and tried to define God for themselves and life for themselves and right and wrong for themselves. And instead of being a beautiful picture of a wonderful people in relationship with God in a beautiful land, it became a very horrible picture. There's all kinds of negative examples as you read through the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible. They are not held up for us as great positive examples on the whole. So to that people, God raised up a king. A great king, a man, he called, a man called David. Who when God drew him to himself and set him up as king, he <coughs> described David as the son of God. The king of Israel was described as God's son, or the Messiah, which means the anointed king, the one who God appointed as his great king to lead and rescue and protect his people. But if you know anything about King David and the kings who came after him, he failed. He failed to live the perfect life that he was meant to live. In fact, he failed dreadfully and he led the people into a horrible decline. It couldn't have been more clear that the people still needed a rescuer. And yet David was promised, even as he failed, that he would have a, a son or a grandson or a great-great-great-grandson who would be called the Son of God too, called the Messiah. But he would be perfect. In fact, the more the kings failed, the more God sent prophets to promise that a new rescuer would come. The true king would come. The perfect Messiah would come. The son of God would come. And he would make all things right. And that father-son relationship would be restored. There's so many examples of this in the prophets. But just one example is there. I put it on the other side of your service sheets. Isaiah 65, verses 17 to 19. Where God himself says... See, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, 
nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. Jerusalem is the city at the centre of Israel, the city that was supposed to be the perfect city where God dwelt with his people, but was very clearly not. But God says, verse 19, I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. That failed city was a shadow, a bad shadow, of what would be the true city that would last forever. The true garden city in which God would dwell with his people. But if there was to be a rescuer, then there would need to be something very different about him. He would need to be a man, yes, just like us, so that he could represent human beings. But he would need to be different. He would need to have the genuine father-son relationship that we were made for. And so last week we were looking at Luke chapter 1, and you might want to just uh, flick back there uh, a page to Luke chapter 1, verse 30. Top of page 1026, where an angel, a messenger of God, came to Mary, a young, unmarried virgin woman, and said, verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Jesus, the true Son of God. Fully human and fully God. Now this is a mind-blowing concept, but it's one that we need to to get into as we come (coughs) to our passage this afternoon. Because it's where we start to see glimpses of it as Jesus grows up. We need to get it into our minds. But what we're going to see is this extraordinary truth that the one person of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, has two natures. One person, two natures. Now we only have, we're one person, I'm one person. But I only have one nature. I'm human. But Jesus had two natures. Jesus had always been the eternal Son of God, right from the beginning. And in that one person, he added to himself another nature, a human nature, and was born as a baby in Mary's womb, born out of Mary's womb, and grew up as a human being. And so when he grew up, he could both be tired and hungry because of his human nature, but at the same time sustain the entire universe as the eternal Son of God because of his divine nature. He died because he had a human nature, but he's immortal because he has a divine nature. He doesn't know the day or hour of his own return because he has a human nature, and yet at the same time he knows everything 
because he has a divine nature. He had a weak, he was a weak and dependent baby in the womb of his mother because he had a human nature. And yet at the same time he sustained all the atoms in his mother's body because he had a divine nature. And the reason this is so important is because he needed to be human so that he could represent us, to be like us, to be the person we fail to be. And he needed to be divine so that he could rescue us. Jesus is fully human and fully divine. And we're going to look first at the fact that he's fully human. And we're going to zoom into our passage now. Uh, Luke 2, 22, uh, that Penny read for us. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. The simple point to see here is that Jesus, as a normal Jewish firstborn son, needed to fulfil the requirements of a normal Jewish firstborn, firstborn son. He had to do everything required by God's law. And we don't have time to go into why God required this. We can talk about that afterwards if anyone's got any questions. But the key thing to see here is he had to be the perfect Israelite baby and then boy. Now we're going to zoom in in a moment into the next few verses. But I want you to jump ahead to verse 39. To the passage that Lucy read to us. Which starts when Joseph, uh, verse 39, when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, there you are, Jesus fulfilling, because of Mary and Joseph's obedience, Jesus fulfilling the law of the Lord even as a baby, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. They took the four-day journey from uh, Nazareth uh, to Jerusalem. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. You see this? These parents who are following the law of the Lord are enabling Jesus to grow up within a family in which he would obey the law of the Lord. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they travelled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him. Here we have just a, an account of a particular event in Jesus' life. It's not <coughs> massively, massively significant. Um, neither Mark, uh, John or Matthew mention this in their accounts of Jesus' life. But obviously Luke was interviewing Mary or uh, someone close to Mary and um, got this information as he was writing down the eyewitness evidence. The striking thing is that Jesus was a normal 12-year-old boy who could get lost. He didn't go around with a special force field, meaning that he could never be mislaid. He wasn't some kind of child superhero. He wasn't a member of the uh, Incredibles family. Jesus was a normal boy. And probably because he was normally totally obedient and would do exactly what he said, his parents didn't worry too much about him. But I don't want you to think that they were careless parents. Often men and women would travel separately. And so Mary probably assumed that Jesus was with uh, Joseph. And Joseph 
assume that uh, Jesus was with Mary, um, or perhaps they assumed that he was with cousins or something like that. And um, so they were travelling. It wasn't until the end of the first day of travel that they were gathering everyone together for their night's sleep that they realised Jesus was missing. So then they had to make a whole another day's journey, second day back, and then it took them a third day in which to find Jesus. And when they found him, uh, they found him, uh, verse 45, uh, back in Jerusalem. Uh, They found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. So Mary thinks that Jesus has has, um, kind of done a run on them. And has mistreated her. Uh, But there's clearly a misunderstanding. But you see, here we get to see Jesus clearly had a human nature. He was a son who worried his mother. He was in a normal family. Um, Probably quite soon after this, uh, Joseph uh, died because we don't hear anything more about Joseph after this. And Jesus, we know, had younger brothers, probably sisters. And so he would have known what it's like to grow up in a single parent family, to be the oldest brother in that. He had a very normal family, a normal upbringing. We don't know very much about him before he was 30. But at the same time, we then get verse 49. Why were you searching for me? Jesus asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Did you not understand I had to be in my father's house? Now for us, having experienced perhaps or looked on at a Christian culture for a couple of thousand years, that idea that Jesus is talking about the temple as his father's house might not seem that weird. But no one had talked about the temple like that before now. As far as we know, this is the first time anyone had done it. And so the arrogance involved in that is extraordinary. I mean, just imagine if I went round Buckingham Palace. I did actually once get to go to Buckingham Palace Gardens. And imagine if I, when I was there, I was, um, I was wandering through the main house as, as people do for the Queen's Garden Party. Sorry to throw that into the mix. Um, and, uh, and, I, and I turned to, to someone and I said, um, isn't my mother's house lovely? <laughs> but w- what would they think I was saying? I think I was completely mad, or that I was claiming to be a member of the royal family. And they'd look at my age and they'd realise I'm not the same age as Prince Charles and so on, and so there's no way that I could be. You see, the only person who could walk through Buckingham Palace and say, this is my father's house, my mother's house, would be Prince Charles and his brothers and sisters. The only person who can sit in the temple of God and say, this is my father's house, is the Son of God. And that's what Jesus is claiming to be. Just a normal 12-year-old boy, and yet at the same time, fully God. And yet we see his humanity then back again, verse 51. Then he went down to Nazareth, Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured up all these things in her heart, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, in favour with God and man. 
Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. Surely as, as God, he had a wisdom and stature implant. He, he didn't need to grow in that. No, he did. He was the eternal son of God who filled the universe. And yet he took to himself human nature. And as to his human nature, he needed to learn and to grow and to build understanding. And to read his Bible just like any other normal Jewish boy. So here we see that Jesus is both fully human and fully God. But in the light of that claim of Jesus to have God as his father, first person who claimed that in history, it seems, well, there's big implications of that. And to see those implications, we're going to zoom in before the end at uh, verses uh, 25 to 30-something, 35. And there's two things that we need to see. Uh, The first is uh, point one. I've just put it on the sheet, uh, on the screen. Recognise you need rescuing by Jesus. Recognise you need rescuing by Jesus. And we're going to look back at verse 25 that uh, Penny read to us. So let's go back to uh, verse 25 of Luke chapter 2. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. The consolation of Israel, that is the time when the burden would be lifted from Israel. And the build up to that prophecy that we saw in Isaiah 65... There's a passage in Isaiah 40 where God says, Comfort, comfort my people, for your warfare has ended and your sin has been dealt with. And that idea of comfort to God's people is the idea of the consolation or the burden being lifted. The burden of sin, that pursuit of independence that separates us from God. And here that's what Simeon was waiting for. And verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. This is the temple courts at the heart of Jerusalem. Do you remember that prophecy, Isaiah 65? It's Jerusalem that are going to be delighted. So it's very significant that Jesus is coming up to Jerusalem here as a baby. Verse 27, moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, and these are some very profound words, verse 29, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. In peace. That idea that he knows that peace is coming because God has sent a rescuer. For my eyes, verse 30, have seen your salvation. Salvation just means rescue. My eyes have seen your rescue or your rescue plan. As he's looking and holding Jesus as a baby, he's seeing his salvation, his rescue, which you have prepared, verse 31, in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So Simeon here, a devout religious man, who's described as righteous and devout, in in right relationship with God, he himself, 
if, if you're thinking here that, you know, I, I, I'm not a sinner, I, I don't need to um, be rescued from anything. Well, look at Simeon, a righteous and devout man who spent all his time in the temple of God. He knew God's word inside out. He was a prayerful man. The Holy Spirit spoke to him and showed him that he was going to see the Lord's Messiah. This is the definition of a good man. And he knows he needs rescue. So we need to know that we need rescue. There's a problem, there's a burden that needs to be lifted. There's death and pain and there's sin running through us all because we're out of relationship with God. The amazing thing about Simeon here is that as he looks at this little baby boy and recognises him as the Messiah he was promised he would see before he dies, he knows he's ready to die. He can die in peace because he's seen God's rescue plan. A man, a boy born to live the life of a normal human being, to live the life that Simeon had failed to live, that you failed to live, that I failed to live. And ultimately, I will look on to die the death that we deserve to die so that we might have eternal life. The other thing that's very striking, before we come on to that, that uh, Simeon says in verse 31, is that this salvation isn't just for the Jewish people. It's not just for Israel. This is to be prepared for the sight of all nations. Jesus is going to be a light for revelation, for revealing God's words to the Gentiles, to the nations, and the glory of God's people Israel. That family are going to expand and grow as the nations come and join them because Jesus is the light that's going to go to the nations. This rescue plan, it humbles us, but it also gives us a wonderful vision of an extraordinary reconciled people. Jesus has come for all, for all nations, and so we should join with him in that task. It's really striking that that's what Andy focused in on as we had the psalm. He got three people from different nations to read it in their own language, in, in French, in Mongolian, and in Somali. And I don't know if, if you, um, uh, those of you who are I- I- English speakers and others, found that difficult as that was happening. I, I found it hard to be patient. I was thinking, I, I don't understand what they're saying, and I'm struggling to concentrate on the words in front of me in English as they're saying it. And this is quite hard, and it's using up quite a lot of time, and I, and I don't get it. Um, this is a bit tricky. But what's striking is that Jesus came to rescue not just people like us, but people of all nations. And in doing so, with his word going out, it's wonderful. He wants it to be translated into every language, but we'll need to be patient with each other. And it's a real joy to have lots of different nations and languages um, here represented as, among us. I think there's at least two or three other languages we could have had Uh, read out um, this afternoon. It's a real encouragement, but it does require immense humility and patience with others. But we need to be rescued with those who are sinners. And so there's no room for pride. We should delight in the fact that people of all nations, people not like us, can be rescued. Here's another holy person, verse 36, who comes, who recognises she needs rescue too. Verse 36, there was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher, She was very old. She'd lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, 
but worship night and day, fasting and praying. Can't work out the maths, but I think she was in the temple for some over 40 years, maybe longer. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. This is a holy woman. This is a woman who you'd think, maybe, maybe she's done enough. Coming up to the, at that very moment, verse 38, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Redemption just means rescue from slavery. Here was a woman who, who longed to be with God, but she knew she too needed to be rescued from slavery. Slavery to sin, to that attitude that pushes God out of the picture and sets ourselves up instead of him. And then finally, we're going to go back and zoom in on a little bit more of what, Zechariah, uh, of what Simeon said. And we're going to see this final point on the sheets. See that our response to Jesus will reveal our hearts. See that your response to Jesus will reveal your heart. Verses 33 to 35. Simeon uh, looks at the child's father and mother. Sorry, verse 33. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother. And these words are very crucial. This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Simeon is telling Mary and Joseph that as they see their son, the great rescuer, grow up, that as he goes out and is the light to the nations. Many will speak against him. Many will fall as he speaks. And the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. As Jesus speaks, he won't just bring people in, although we <coughs> he will, but also there will be those who resist him, who hate that message of the need for a rescuer. There will be those who think that they're okay on their own or that they prefer to be independent of God and will push God out of the picture and will push, therefore, Jesus out of the picture. And so our response to Jesus will actually say much more about us than it does about him. He is the great Messiah, the great King, the great Son of God, and we'll see more and more evidence for that as the weeks go on. But whether or not we accept Jesus will reveal or expose what. We think of ourselves. We may reject or dismiss God's rescue plan in Jesus. And it will show, if we reject Jesus, that we are too proud to think that we need saving, to think that we need rescue. It will show that we're quite happy to live without God. Or that we think we can get to God on our own terms. You see, Jesus was the only one who came and claimed to be God in the flesh. God in human form. Jesus was the only religious leader who's been taken seriously on that. And yet Jesus says that he's also the only one who says that the only way to God is if he rescues us. We can do nothing on our own. Every other religion says that you need to do something to get to God. And so in some ways it, it boosts our pride. Even if we failed miserably... You then sort of, if you do enough stuff, then God will accept you. 
And so you get to God somehow on your own terms, on the performance of religious duties. Simeon and Anna knew that for all their performance of religious duties, there's no way they could get to God on their own. And we need to recognise too that we need to, we need to be in right relationship with God. The only way to get there is if we realise and recognise that we deserve nothing from God. We need him to step down and to rescue us. And then, only then, will a heart of sorrow turn to a heart of joy as we receive God's gift of forgiveness and reconciliation in Jesus Christ. It's an amazing good news, but it will divide. And so as we go out with this message to others, we should expect that not everyone will accept the good news of the Lord Jesus. But we should keep praying for them that they will, without an even an ounce of pride. Because what reason do we have for pride towards anyone else since God has rescued us? Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you so much for this wonderful message of reconciliation in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that as we read through more of Luke's Gospel that you would show us more of him more of his wonder, his goodness, and how he came to rescue us. Please give us the humility to recognise that for ourselves, and the joy to go and share it with others. In Jesus' name, Amen. Um, does anyone have any questions in the light of that, especially if you're thinking of, of sharing that with others? Before I hand back to Andy. Yeah, Penny. Um, I feel like it was quite simple in the... Um There's no, there's no reference to David addressing God as his father. It seems to be reserved for through Christ that we get to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and in him, by trusting in him, we get given the father-son, father-child relationship that we're always meant to have. So we can now call God father. Yeah. Um, but before Jesus, no, even David, even David who was called God's son, the son of God, that was a, a king title. And I suppose in some ways David knew that the title, the Son of God, was one that he failed to live up to. Um, perhaps that's one of the reasons that he doesn't call God his father. Um, David had a, a very close relationship with God, and he was confident that God would send a rescuer. Um, but it's very striking that Jesus was the first to use that. Okay. Um, when you said you can't get to God on your own terms, mm. that was More of, of what is it? Why can't we get to God on our own terms? So, um, because we have, because we've pushed God out of the picture, uh, because we sort of ignore Him most of the time, um, even if we try and do religious things, uh, even if we genuinely seek Him in prayer and so on, uh, none of that can get us to God because there's a, a barrier. Uh, separating us and God. In fact, the best way that someone explained it to me was imagine uh, this book was a lot thicker book and it, in it, it contained a record of everything that I've ever thought and done. 
And God, as we were reading in the psalm, was, is a God of justice. His justice is deeper than the oceans. And so as much as he loves us, um, that record separates us from him. So imagine the light above me is, uh, is God. That represents God. And this hand represents my life. Um, I'm made for a relationship with God, but the record of my sin and the fact that I push him out of the picture all the time separates me from God, cuts me off. And his justice needs to deal with that problem. And so it's one of the reasons that we experience sometimes that feeling of, have my prayers hit the ceiling? Does God even care about me? How do I even know he exists? Because we're, we're separated from him. And yet Jesus lived the perfect life. And he's the only one who did. And so the only way for justice to be done is if someone who's never done anything wrong pays that penalty themselves. And, and, and Jesus, the only one who'd never done anything wrong, and the eternal son of God, so God himself stepped forward and took that record on himself. And as he died on the cross, he himself was, was cut off. And so he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was experiencing the, the separation that our sin causes, which means that we can come to God. You see, if I'm stuck under this barrier of justice, it doesn't matter how much good stuff I do, or a, a, another example might be, if you, if you take a beautiful clean glass of water and add spit to it or feces or poison. It doesn't matter how much more water you add in, the stuff's still there and everything gets tainted and polluted. And so our record of sin still continues to cut us off. There's nothing we can do for it. So we could try and be more and more religious on our own terms or say, I like to think of God like this or I like to think of God like that or I'm going to get to God like this or he'll accept me if I do that or if I'm successful in this area or if I'm kind to that person. But actually, the barrier is still there. And so the only way to be saved is for God himself to come down and to take that barrier on himself so that we can be free to live the life that we were made to live. Is that a helpful expression? It's probably a good place to stop and it's a great, it's a great question because that's the very heart of the Christian message. And we'll be thinking about that more in future weeks.